This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it. Books. Yay. Here's take Alfred two. with us as well. And, oh, no, no. We did it in one take. We did it. Ah, okay. Officially, we it took several takes. It only took 20. <laughs> two, I was being... Uh, I, I said take two twice. <laughs> no. We, we got there. We got there. Welcome to episode 35 of Books Boys. What have we read in August? And I think I genuinely have read a little bit less than, than usual. And I have read about the same as I did last month, which I feel pretty decent about. I had just the craziest month. The first half of the month, I did. we did a lot of Playboys because you and I did two Oedipus plays. So those are on patreon.com slash booksboys. Then we, our friend Carla has joined the, the Playboys uh, crew and I did two Chekhov plays with her. So actually this month I have done four Playboys episodes. And we are about to do another one soon. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up um, Sophocles, and then also I, you know, that I spent this fifteen days in a row dancing. So the second half of the month was just gone. So it's been a crazy <laughs> month. Yeah, I've had enough time to read all my stuff for this month and start on next month's stuff already, wow. which is pretty nice. Um, we'll we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, it was just tricky when I was. Um... Dancing like four hours a day uh, for two weeks, you know, in preparation for the the Belfast Mela. Um, I didn't get as much done, but I mean, you'll see. I still think I read a decent amount, so we'll get there. Um, first of all, though, since we've mentioned it, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, because not only do you get the latest Playboys on there, Robert and I are still doing Dark Place Dreamers. We're almost finished Hammer Horror. We're going to record the last episode this week, and we're so excited to not have to do it anymore. <laughs> and, you love it yeah but it turned out to not be very good <laughs> oh no <laughs> I, I loved it when i was 15 or whenever i last watched it so our experience with aeschylus yeah kind of that um and then i put up a music man episode myself and then we released also we released for free for everyone uh with the two chicks talking flicks podcast film fellows i did american psycho so that's out for everyone as well. So I, I did a lot of podcasting uh, this month, actually. Hmm. Alfred, comparatively, there he is, lazy. Very little, very little. Yeah. And he expects us to pay him as much as he wants. Yeah, it's it's curious that most of the show's budget goes to him. And yet, to the casual observer, he doesn't do a massive amount. Does the odd Instagram photo from time to time, sits it on the, on the episodes... Yeah. Yeah. Curious. I got a business proposal later. You uh, might need to get <laughs> Alfred out of the room first. <laughs> so I'm going to mention what I started with because I did the checkoff plays and you had recommended Uncle Vanya. So after doing the two for Playboys, I just kind of thought before I return the book, I'll read mm-hmm. Uncle Vanya. Is it safe to say that having done the Cherry Orchard and the Seagull, which I both liked, by the way, 
Uncle Vanya is a little bit weaker. There is less in Uncle Vanya that I remember than from single uh, seagulls or uh, cherry orchard. But I also did watch the movie with Wallace Shawn, and he was honestly very entertaining. So I have I have positive memories with Uncle Vanya, but I I can't tell you much about what happens. Yeah, I'm only going to spend a minute on it. I I don't even I read it at the very beginning of the month. I also read I don't it remember like much. eight years ago. It must have been 2015 or 2014 when I did it. And what I'll say is, although I enjoyed these plays, you know, there were other plays in the book. There was Ivanov, there was the Three Sisters. I didn't bother. Like, they, there's something about the Russian writing style that's a little bit different than your Western European style, and it, it just doesn't make me want to read more if I don't have to. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. They all have something similar. Yeah, I similar. can't really say I'm super interested. I would need someone who loves it to explain why I should love it. Yeah. And even when I like it, it's like, okay, cool, that was good. Do you want to read another one? It's like, ah, no, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there must be so much, though, but I just uh, just haven't found it. Hmm. What, one, one part I like, so there's one character, um, I, I, we, even Carla and I, we butchered all the names um, when we did the episodes, but Teljegen? <laughs> And this is funny. He says, forgive me, Vanya. My wife ran away from me the day after our wedding. So one day after they're married, he runs, she runs off with a man he loves. And because, because he's not handsome enough, my unprepossessing appearance. But he mentions he never failed in his duty towards her, still loves her. He is faithful to her, helps her as much as he can, spends all his money on educating the children that she has had with another man. Uh, he has no happiness. And it's like, okay, hold on. You have just like super cucked yourself. Like, I don't know why <laughs> you've done this. She's ran off. You're married to her for a matter of hours. I don't think you have all these obligations. And that's where the comedy is. It really is small and you have to find it. But I I think it's it's definitely there. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's it, a, here's a line of pure comedy when he, he's introducing himself to someone and she's like, I don't know who you are. And he's like, well... You may have been so kind as to notice that I have dinner with you every day. Like you know me. So there's a little little bits of comedy here and there. Mm. Uh I didn't find them they're not they're not laugh out loud funny, you know. It's like a hmm type. But yes. also when you watch it, it could have a little bit more to it as well. It's not um It's not Aristophanes. You know, it's not like slapstick and fart jokes. Which is good. I yeah. would hate for <laughs> Chekhov to do that. Although but you it, do have a character, I believe it's Seagulls. He just comes in, says moo, and then leaves. Just for a weird gag. Like, Yeah, I think that the comedy is a little bit more... The fact that the people are a little bit off. You know, and some mm, of the things that happen are a always. little bit unusual rather than jokes, you know? But and I think it's situational humor, which it may not be for everyone. Yeah. The book I'm currently reading right now, there's a lot of situational humor, but there's also a lot of like back and forth and quips, which mm -hmm. uh, I do laugh out loud reading, but I will get into that next month. This one also has a similar plot point to the Cherry Orchard about selling up the old house and things like that, although it's not as important uh, in this one. Um, but selling the estate 
is a big part of it. And then they're like, well, where should we live? And it turns out the girl, Sonia, technically owns the estate, not, you know, the parents and things. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm not really going to go into it. It's fine. It was all right. I, I, I wouldn't, I would recommend the other two first, you know. That's fair. That's fair. So then I moved on and I read El Coyote. I mentioned that we would do Coyote Corner. Um, I can now confirm we will only do one Coyote Corner. <laughs> oh, why, Dean? Yeah, this was not great. <laughs> so first of all, I was annoyed because 50 pages, you'll notice that it's actually written in columns and it's small text. So oh it essentially goodness. doubles the page count. So what I thought oh, was wow. a short story was a novella, you know? So it was not as nice as I thought. <laughs> so I thought I would read it and like, you know, sit down and do it in the, you know, in a, in a morning. And it was not that. Um, it's called When the Coyote Punishes. And you'll see him on the front there. He's a, he's a purple clad mariachi. Um, <laughs> he looks fantastic. He's riding a horse, shooting a gun at the same time, you know, Kind of like the shadow or whatever in that movie. Yeah. Just that's funny. That's funny. But I I thought it would be funny, but it wasn't. I thought it'd be like adventurous. Was it not like it's supposed to be a ripoff of Zorro, you know? Okay. Um and to be fair, I've only seen like a movie of Zorro. I've never actually, you know, I don't know. Can you read it? I don't know. Is it also a book? So I don't know what the vibe is. But this was good. It was kind of dry and kind of boring. So essentially, El Coyote, this is set um, in California during the time when it has, I guess, maybe you'll know more about the history than me, but it was kind of moving from control of Mexico to control of USA. There was some, like, disputes there. Oh, okay. With the, yeah, sure. We took uh, some of their land. Mm Mm-hmm. So the coyote is there to be like the protector of the Latinos, the Hispanics in the region, essentially. Um, Mm. One of the underlying themes is that there's a lot of gold to be dug up as well. And there's even a joke when they're like, where are the police? Why is this issue not getting looked into? And they're like, well, the police are all like digging up gold. (laughs) They're not interested in in doing any any other work. So he's a kind of a renegade justice kind of, that's a Steven Seagal movie, renegade justice. He's a kind of renegade um, guy, you know, everyone knows him and they mention there's a funny joke where someone says to this girl were you an old lover of the coyotes and he says oh i'm sorry if i offended you and she says well no woman would be offended by being called a lover of the coyote but the, but but calling me an old lover that is offensive so <laughs> like he's kind of i guess got that almost james bond style ladies man vibe as well you know he's supposed to be like really attractive or whatever he was riding a massive hat and a bright purple mariachi costume with the little <laughs> robber mask, you know, like, like or just over the eyes. He's not well disguised. This is what I kind of expected when watching the movie Mariachi. El Mariachi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, oh, I wonder fantastic. if, like, so this is kind of like Scarlet Pimpernel for you as well. You're kind of hoping for that adventurous side. I was hoping for the Three Musketeers level of adventure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I, I didn't get it. Uh, this is also unique. This is issue number 18, by the way. And uh, I don't know how many there are. It's unique in that apparently it was the first one where the Coyote fails in, in his mission. Um, which I, I I didn't I didn't care. But <laughs> he there's there's some kind of plot going on and he goes in and I'm not gonna get into it, but 
he ends up doing his punishment and he like trashes the guy's whole office and everything and wrecks the place and you know there's a couple of moments where he's kind of badass and he makes the guy like follow him out into the street in the bathrobe and doesn't give him time to change and and, and this kind of stuff um but I kind of mm. felt that it was a bit dry. It didn't really go it. Put it this way. I had planned to do six of these and uh, I'm not going to be doing any more. <laughs> so <laughs> up until today, I thought I would at least do one more to give it a second chance. And then when it oh. came time to reviewing my notes today, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to, we're not going to do any more of this. <laughs> but he does sign all his notes with this little coyote picture, if you can see there. So that's, if he signs his note ah. with that, then you then you know it's it's from the coyote. He really is Zoro. Okay. Yeah. And he's this kind of mythical creature. You know, everyone's always talking about, like, if they're getting into trouble, like, the coyote will save us, you know, from all the, the injustices that are going on here. Um, but, yeah, you know, like, it, he doesn't really save them. He comes in at the end, and there's a little bit of action, as I say, and he, like, trashes the office and carries the, you know, makes the guy walk around in his bathrobe, pointing a gun at him. But then he fails to actually save the day. So it's kind of like, okay, did like, did I, I just read all of this. I don't know if anything was achieved, you know, like it's just, it seemed like I was wasting my time a little bit. And with it being an old serial as well, I mean, this on the back, it mentions 235 pesetas. So this is quite old. Um, It's also very sexist as well. I'm, I don't even know if I'm going to bother looking up the quote, but the way they refer to women, you know, little housewife types and everything, it's very sexist. I just don't. I I would find it very difficult to recommend this to anyone, bar the mm. occasional little bits of humor. For example, the guy says, "Are you are you going to assassinate me?" And he says to the driver, "Am I capable of assassinating him?" And the driver says, "No, you're not capable of assassinating him. You're capable of executing him <laughs> because uh, he's not like actually worthy of assassination. He's not important enough to kind of use that title. He's a oh. criminal, so it would be an execution. So there's little bits like that that I." I guess that's mildly amusing. <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't recommend the book based on that. Maybe so it started with volume one. I yeah. The next one is the masked horseman. It's like, cool. I mean, that's all of them. I feel like, so I don't know why it's called that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not recommending the coyote. Well, that's too bad. So that was my kind of ancillary stuff. I did some plays. I did the coyote. Uh, at this point, it was halfway through the month. And I was like, oh my God, I've got to read something. Um, <laughs> I picked up a Dumas Jr. Dumas Fil, hijo. La Dama de las Camellias. So this is funny. I read this in Spanish. Um, okay. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it's French, but the way you pronounced it was very Spanish. Okay. Yeah. Now, so this is. is the second time I got tricked. It's 170 pages. And I thought, oh, brilliant. This is a short one. And again, look at this tiny, tiny wall to wall text, every ah. single page. Oh, even the dialogue is embedded. There are new paragraphs in this book. It is just oh, wall to wall no. text for 170 pages. It are there was, at least chapters to break it up? There are chapters, but it was tough to get through. Um, then to my own chagrin, I was checking out my bookshelf and what did I find here? Oh, what's this? In English, The Lady of the Camellias by Dumas Jr., I, I had it all along on my shelf. And when it's actually broken up properly with paragraphs, it is 330 pages. So it's... <laughs> yeah. It's actually a full novel, it's not the little... Yeah, not the little thing that I thought it was. So I believe I spoke to you when I just started it. I was about 30 or 
40 pages in and I said, it's trash. Um, I'm going to recant that after finishing it. Okay. I did like it. No, he's not fit to shine his dad's shoes. Okay. So like he's, this is not Dumas. He's not that good. And whether or not he would have been famous without his dad. In fact, he isn't even really famous. Whether or not he would be remembered at all without his dad. I don't know. But, Did he write anything more famous than what you read? I don't think any of his books are actually famous. Um, from what I can understand, the, his most lasting success was actually, we talked about this before, he wrote the play that La Traviata was later adapted from. Oh, okay. I think that's his lasting success, to be honest, is that. So Lady of the Camellias. Okay, this can be summed up pretty quickly okay i essentially there's this one chap and he sees this girl and i guess you know she i think in the beginning scene she's like collecting camellias or whatever so that's why he decides she's the camellias she's margarita and he just falls madly madly in love with her but she's uh the typical french coquette style you know so she's always going to the theater and to the opera with the duke of such and such and the kind of something else just hanging out with all these guys but he falls madly in love with her to the point where it's kind of creepy and he's stalking her a little bit and waiting outside her house and everything so he's a bit creepy um but then she does eventually reciprocate and she tells him that she loves him, and they even move in together for a short time. But he, the whole time, is constantly toxic and jealous and suspicious and, you know, paranoid and all of this stuff. But then on the flip side, 50% of the time, he's right to be, because she is continuing to see the kind and the joke and all these other people. So the whole thing is just horrible and toxic. They're kind of both bad people. There's, I wasn't really rooting for anyone in this in this one. Um, and she says to him, you know, I love you, but I want to have a lavish lifestyle. And if I continue going out with the Count, he'll, uh, you know, pay for everything. So you can't afford all those things. Was he of Monte Cristo? <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't tell you. It's the Count of, and it just says G and a dash. Like the name of the town is, is deleted from the novel. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Um, so she continues with those guys and he's like waiting outside the house and he's like, she sells him like, come around tomorrow. But then when he goes around, the doorman won't let him in. So he waits and waits and he sees the kind get let in, you know? So it's all that kind of stuff. She also has another friend who actually is also helping to fund her lifestyle a little bit. And I can never figure out if she's on her side or if she's going to help the guy because sometimes she seems like she is, but then it's, it's unclear. But really there's no one likable in it. The love story is is something that interests me, of course. And at one point, like they go to see his dad, and the dad's like, "This girl's too good for you, <laughs> but you shouldn't be involved with her." So they break up, and then they're together, and then they break up, and it's a lot of you know, ah, tearing the shirt and passionate, you know, which I which I love the melodrama. Okay. Um, but then also, huh. you might be wondering. I'm going to give a spoiler on this one, and I'll tell you why I'm spoiling it in a moment. How does it end? Do they get together? Do they not? Um, it's actually solved very easily because she dies. So that's it sorted. Oh, okay. Now, that would have been a massive spoiler if they didn't spoil it in the intro. They <laughs> literally mention in the intro that she's going to die because there's little bits in between the chapters, which is like a, someone telling the story. 
and it, it comes up every now and again. So they spoiled the whole story. So the one thing that would have been interesting was spoiled in like the first couple of pages. So oh I just, it's just pointless. <laughs> I've been reading lots of books recently and all of them have introductions. And I like reading the introductions because it gives me a lot of history and it kind of tells me what uh, more of the educated people who study these books think. Mm. But in the one that I read this month, it spoiled the ending. (sighs) Why did you tell me that? I didn't want to know that this guy dies at the end. Yeah. It it really, I'm like, well, he's going to die. He's going to die. Why should I care about this character now? I generally never read the sort of academic intros or prefaces. Um, It's just more work for a start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I find them to give me a better idea of what to expect, what this means to certain people. So I I think uh, I'm actually going to read part of one in a little bit. I, I got out of the way of doing it because PJ and I discovered that a lot of the Spanish books that we get... It's like 50 pages of the actual novel because they're very short and then like 100 pages of academic uh, intro. And it's like, okay, this is actually, there's more intro than than book. So I just kind of got out of the way of reading them at that point. My Spanish one is 16 pages of intro. That's not too bad. That 181 is 181 pages. Okay, hmm. that's that's doable. Uh, that's not too bad. But yeah, yeah, I feel this one was pointless because I could have read it. I mean, it's fine reading it in Spanish, but it would have been maybe... It's broken up a lot nicer in the English book. It would have been nicer to read than this wall-to-wall block text. Um, look, it's just rich Paris people living their lifestyle. The guy can't afford to keep up with it, so she kind of treats him like dirt. But then he's also paranoid and possessive and terrible, and everyone's terrible. Like, that's that's it, you know? And other people talk about her as if she's a whore, because... She kind of is because she's going with all these guys just because they're paying like her rent and things like that. So there's that aspect of it. But yeah, you know what? This was fine. Like that's the most I can say about it. Whereas when I read a Dumas, with one or two exceptions that have been just okay, most of them have been really good. You know, there's been a couple of middle of the road ones, of course. This was just kind of there. I will never remember this. In you know, in, in once I've <laughs> spoken about it on this episode, I will never remember this book. Yeah, that's fair. You'll just remember. Oh yeah, Dumasan didn't care for him. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, up next, Sarah Staggs. See a nice poetic looking cover there. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book's called Uncontrollable. This is a nice one, about three hundred pages as well. Um. Texan author, authoress. This one is about a girl called Casey who is dealing in litigation, um, but she's got epilepsy and it draws in some real experiences from the author. And essentially what's happening is her health is getting worse and worse, but her work stress is getting more and more. She's taking on big cases and she wants to make partner and this kind of thing. And she keeps taking, you know, like seizures and things. And and her husband is always worried. Like, I don't think you can keep this job, you know. But of course, she sees it as you're trying to take away my job and everything. Meanwhile, he's potentially getting a promotion. So then there's like that tension where that's not cool. Um, Hmm. 
But then he also goes through a lot of tribulations as well, because, you know, obviously he's dealing with all the health issues that she has. It's causing him problems at work because they've got this USA kind of vibe of like, you should be staying late and working more. Why aren't you working through the evening? And he's like, I literally have a sick wife. (laughs) That's law firms in general. Or I don't know. You're talking about uh, her or him? That's with him. So he's oh, not, he's, okay. he doesn't work in law. He works in advertising, but it's the same. They're just like, yeah, I mean, you should be working through the night. If you want the promotion, you really should be uh, not clocking out at five o'clock kind of thing, you know, to the point where they literally, they literally are acting like, why is your wife, why is your um, wife who is in hospital more important than like this, uh, you know, advertising slogan, you know, like that's not what we expect from you. <laughs> so it's. Yeah. You know, honestly, it's a fun one in a way because, like, you you kind of want to see what's happening with the litigation, and it's a serious case about like a uh, prison guard like abusing some of the female inmates and everything. Um, but but meanwhile, you really care about the, the interpersonal relationship with the couple and their marriage, and um, it really opens up like the struggles that people like with epilepsy have in these types of stressful workplaces. So it's touching on a lot of themes, and I really really liked it. Oh. It's actually pretty cool. Like, yeah. do you know, so the author had experience with uh, epilepsy as well. Did they also work in law or like very stressful? I believe so. Yeah. Um, from what I know, a lot of it is based on um, real life experiences. Yeah. Not obviously fictionalized and everything, but um, yeah. Oh. oh, hold on a second. The phone's just ringing there. So I'm going to see who's on the line. I'll be back with you in a few minutes. Good, sir. Hello, you're through the books, boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? I'm Sarah Staggs, and I am the author of a book we're going to talk about today. Awesome, Sarah, that's fantastic. We were indeed just talking about your book, Uncontrollable. Before I even read the book, I love the cover. It's a very powerful cover. Absolutely fantastic. That's all. Yeah, um, David King at the publishing company did a great job. It was fantastic. It's very nice. It's powerful. It kind of lends a little mystique. It makes me want to, to open it up and read it. And um, okay. this is 300 pages. And I think I, I was hitting about 150 a, a day because it just it's one of those kind of page turners that you don't it has a fast pace and you just don't want to put it down. So that's fantastic. I want to ask you, though, because I, I, I read a little bit about yourself as well. So we've talked about what happens in the novel just before you rang in. Um, I want to ask you what motivated you to write the novel. Obviously, there's some ties with your own life. You do litigation, you've got the epilepsy and things like that. So the tie-ins are real, but this isn't necessarily biographical. It's just drawing on some of your own experiences. Is that right? Yes, it was inspired by some of my experiences. And I've had two brain surgeries in the past five years. And so the pre-surgical workups were pretty traumatic. So I I kept a journal in the hospital both times. And when I came home, I just started writing and using it as therapy, really. And Mm -hmm. then I started looking at what I'd written and thought, oh, well, maybe if I make some characters and fictional backstories together, yeah, (laughs) it could be a novel. Maybe people would be interested in this. And um, it turns out that that is true. So how much of the, I don't want to say how much of it is true, but how much of it is fictionalized, I suppose, is what I want to ask. So it's all fictionalized to different degrees. So the medical scenes are what would be called auto fiction, which is autobiographical Mm -hmm. fiction. 
So, I mean, the term doesn't actually make sense because if it's <laughs> autobiographical, it's true, right? And if it's yeah. fiction, it's fiction. But that's just what it's called in, in the writing industry. And then the backstories and the characters themselves and their journeys personally, those are just pure fiction. Totally. Totally. I, I'm a sucker for romance. So my biggest tie-in is like the love story between the couple. Like I want to find out what's happening with Casey and Jonah and... Hopefully it's not giving too many spoilers away to say that they have some little speed bumps and some setbacks throughout the novel in their relationship. And it kind of, that's my big, that's the reason I couldn't put it down is because they were well written and I wanted to know what was going to happen with their story. Um, and, and they're fantastic. And it's interesting as well because it wasn't one of those books where, okay, I'm siding with this person and I don't like what they're doing to this person. It's kind of like, okay, I like them both. I can see where they're both coming from. Was that deliberate that you kind of equally like them both? It was. Um, my husband, first of all, would like me to emphasize that he is not Jonah. So <laughs> read this book. <laughs> Any part where Jonah is behaving badly, that is not based on my husband's behavior. <laughs> um, second of all, it was deliberate because I wanted them both to be flawed, right? Because no one's perfect. Yeah. And it would make it more realistic and... Yet I wanted you to be able to root for both of them because uh, for those of your listeners who haven't read it, it's written in two voices. So mm-hmm. one chapter will be Casey and the next will be Jonah and Casey and Jonah and so forth. So I did want to write characters that readers could relate to and and be able to root for, but also know like, yeah, I see that. I know that a marriage is not perfect. And I know that people are not perfect, but I, I like these people. Yeah, it's good to have that dueling perspective because it, it balances things, you know, because sometimes they're not necessarily fair with one another. So it's good to see the double the double perspective. Yeah, very, that's another... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. That's another reason that I chose to do it in two voices, because not only does it give a different uh, view into what it means to have a chronic condition in a marriage... But it gives a different view on on their sort of career paths and how they interact with each other so that you don't just see one person's side and the other person automatically becomes the villain, right? Yeah. Let's give one example. Um, There's the part where Jonah is potentially going to get a promotion. It's not certain at this point, but he thinks he might be in line for a promotion. He doesn't want to tell Casey because, of course because of her health issues, she's potentially losing out on a, on a promotion or losing out on some work. So he hides that from her. And then there's the guilt of that. And it's kind of like, right, I can see that he's trying to protect her, but he's taking away her agency in that. He's not necessarily treating her like an adult. So you can see both sides. And when it eventually becomes an argument, I'm like, yeah, I agree with you both. <laughs> yeah. So that's an example of how I wanted to make it relatable. I mean, if, you have something that is exciting to you, but maybe your spouse is not in the same place. How do you deal with that? And I think that, you know, Jonah's side is fair and not fair. He's doing it because he cares for Casey. Yet, is it fair for Casey? I I don't know. It's up to the reader to decide. That's the thing. And of course, as we go along, there's some things Jonah does that I definitely don't agree with. But, But certainly in the beginnings, you know, there's something that I think it's Jonah's mom says at the party at one point, she kind of says, no one's really thinking about you. All the attention is on Casey. And of course that's understandable. She's going through this 
this trauma. But Jonah's not getting it easy either, I suppose. And no one really does stop to take stock of that. So I guess he's struggling too. But of course, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? I'm getting it difficult while she's undergoing the, the surgery and everything, you know? Yeah. So it's, a, it's difficult. Yeah. And that is, I think, very much how a chronic condition can interfere with a marriage is the person who has the health issues, right, gets all the attention. And then the spouse is kind of given pretty much all the responsibility that's left over, but none of the recognition. And so that builds resentment between Casey and Jonah that kind of plays into their love story. Yeah. Another interesting theme for me is the horrible bosses. They're awful. So, so cruel. So we have, um, is it Harold, um, Casey's boss? And, you know, his whole vibe is like, well, we've got this important case, so hopefully your health isn't going to get in the way. And she's like, well, I'm going to need to take some time off for, for like all this kind of going, you know, all these checks and everything before the surgery to see if I'm a suitable candidate and whatever else. And he's like, oh, Cool. So I'm, he phones her while he's in the hospital, you know, even to be like, this isn't working. What are you going to do about it? Like, Leave her alone. Give her her time to, to deal with her health. Like, it, that's shocking to me. But then at the same time, Jonah's bosses are kind of like, yeah, you should maybe get a promotion, but we're not too sure because you're busy with your family. And it's like, yeah, he is. That should be reasonable. Is this tip like you've obviously worked like in litigation and things like that? It's not an, an area that I've ever worked in. Is this like a typical way for like companies to be like this level of intensity and pressure? So Harold is actually a combination of a few bosses that I've right. <laughs> um, I had a boss when I was about thirty who um, we were going to trial and I had a seizure and I was unable to come to work the you know week before the trial. And so this woman sent the legal assistant to my house with the work that I was supposed to do. No. And I'd cut my head. And so I had blood that had clotted in my hair and the legal assistant went back and informed my boss that I had dyed my hair red. <laughs> and so, you know... Um, Harold has unreasonable expectations, and that's based on a lot of things that I have experienced. And then Jonah's challenge is that people expect um, men to sort of put their family second and their career first, right? Mm -hmm. They expect women to just juggle it all. And then men are are still, you know, as open-minded as our society supposedly is, still expected to kind of sideline the family and just let the woman deal with it and just get on with it, no matter how much the company promotes work, work-life balance. So that's where Jonah kind of stumbles is trying to explain to his bosses, Hey, I, I need to put this first. I can still show up at mm -hmm. work. These, these are my parameters. And, yeah. and he's fair. Like he does the job. He gets results. Yeah. There's not even right. a problem. It's just kind of, we want to see for no real reason, this like overcommitment from you, you know? Yeah. I think that it's because his bosses are from a different generation yeah. and so they don't understand. They're from like that mad men generation, yeah. sort of, you know, where it was like, they didn't really understand uh, how you could use technology to work 
outside the office. And, and this is in 2017 is when the um, book takes place. Mm-hmm. So it's before the pandemic, yeah. before things really became like, oh, you can get things done remote. And before like the older generation began to understand that. Mm. So um, it's, it's strange to think it was so recent, but, but that's exactly right. Before the pandemic, a lot of 90% of companies weren't even considering that remote work was possible. And it's, you know, just a few years later, it feels so odd, but yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, it's like a 50%, you can work from home, 50%, everyone's back in the office, but people are much more accepting that if you're not in the office, you can still get work done. Yeah. And the sad thing is Jonah goes home and he does a little bit of work, but they kind of don't value that. You know, they're like, why are you in the office till 9 p.m.? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's his whole thing is like, I can work smarter and faster. I don't have to be here. I yeah. can get just as much done and teach my team how to work more efficiently. The bit and that the really like, well, we just want the FaceTime. Yeah, they, they just want the, like, tick a box, we saw him here. They don't really right. care about what he's doing, you know. The bit that really gets me is when they kind of make a proposition to him and he says, look, I, I do need to be at home with the family and everything as well. He says, okay, I'll see what I can do. I think I can do the commitment. Like, give me a day to think about it. And they're kind of like, well, you shouldn't even need to think about it. And I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think that that's unreasonable for either men or women, Um at least in, you know, 2017, yeah. maybe it's become a little more flexible, mm. but I think that definitely if your um, bosses were of a, a different generation and older, then that was something, you know, that you faced. Well, you yeah. shouldn't have to think about it. You just should put work first. It's sadly realistic, you know, because I read it and I'm like, yeah, this checks out, but it makes yeah. me very mad. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, yeah, this tracks. Yeah. yeah. And of course, mean, meanwhile, it's no easier for, for Casey, because as we said, Harold's putting on the pressure. She's left, a, a, you know, an assistant who's perfectly competent to do the work. And Harold's phoning her like, ah, she's messing it up. You know, you got to deal with this. It's like, I'm literally in a hospital bed right now. <laughs> I cannot possibly do anything. It's madness, but it's part of that hustle and bustle, I suppose. And it's interesting that they're both having, I suppose, in a way, similar kinds of work related issues but they're coping with it differently and dealing with it differently. And I just feel so sad for both of them, you know? And then obviously all the, the medical stuff, the relationship issues that are coming in, they're having a really stressful time. And it's just fantastic that they get through it at all, I think. Yeah, I, um, I didn't want to make it a book just about epilepsy. So it's really quite bigger than that. And it's more, it is a love story and a story about a marriage and its challenges and how you get through challenges or not, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. it's, there are a lot of different layers to it, which I think people have found to be surprising and, and relatable. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, if I was there, I, if I was Casey, Harold would get a, a smack on the head at one point. You know, I don't, I don't think he's escaping completely unscathed. And then, of course, the funniest thing is he's so worried about the big case, but the only one who's really in jeopardy of messing it up is himself with his own tactlessness. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and the case actually is the case that I worked on. And... Right. Do you want to tell us about it then? So the, in the in the book, we've got Kathy and we've got... Um, well, you, 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 you tell us because you, you'll do it better than I will. 
That's okay. Um, yeah, so I did civil rights litigation. So for example, if you were mistreated in jail or the cops beat you up and, you know, or your house was unreasonably searched, then you would come to me and I would represent you. Um, and the case in this book is a case that I worked on where um, a lot of women, about five women were raped by this one guard in prison. And it was reported by a few of them to the superiors and and it was just sort of brushed aside until finally this one woman was really forceful about it and you know started making a lot of noise and it's kind of like squeaky wheel and she started writing to attorneys and then they started you know smelling the potential of litigation and so the guard was put on leave and then fired and it was it became a whole thing and so I ended up working on the case where we represented the five women who reported these rapes and um, the case ended up settling very successfully so we didn't Mm -hmm. go to trial because the government didn't really have a lot (laughs) to say in the courtroom but in the book, Casey does go to trial she wants, because she, she doesn't to want to yeah. settle. She wants to make a point of, no, you know. Maybe I'm I, naive, but I was like, why is the Department of um, Justice or Corrections or whatever, why are they even fighting this? Like, they, they moved the guy off the position and eventually, you know, got rid of him. So they know that he did a bad thing. Right. So in my mind, I'm like, cool. Oh, so they've admitted blame like that's it it's what why are they even fighting this you know like just 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 settle just offer something because they don't really have a what's the defense you know like yeah they just Um, didn't know about it i guess you know yeah that was basically it like we didn't know and the thing is i mean at least in the case that i worked on and as i as i wrote it they they did know Mm. but they're trying to say we didn't know or and when we did we we looked into it yeah that's almost not good enough anyway (laughs) so like it still happened whether you knew or not that's your that's still your problem so yeah yeah but we should say that the the case is important because if it weren't for the the epilepsy and all the medical issues that are potentially going to end Casey's career this would be the 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 career making case this would be the one that would make her partner and the promotion and and everything and this is what she was looking forward to but of course she really, really wants to fight that. And it's understandable that even though she's having seizures, and uh, I think at one point they say four in the last six weeks, you know, at the beginning of the novel. So although she's having these problems, um, she's like, doesn't want to admit defeat on it. You know, it's like, I'm going to fight. I'm going to take on the case, no matter how stressful it is, which is understandable. But then poor Jonah is like, I can see what this is doing to your health as well. And this is bad. And if you make yourself more stressed and lead to more seizures, like you could die. And we've got kids and everything. So it's really, it's just a shame that the big case came at this moment for her, I suppose. But it's very tense because I'm like, what what was going to happen here? Like, can she handle the stress? Essentially, that's the overarching theme is, can she do this case? And and um, that's what you're re- you're really rooting for her, but at the same time, you kind of feel fear and 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 empathy for Jonah, who's kind of like this might this might kill you, you know? Yeah, no, I think that was sort of another thing that I purposefully did in writing was give you like Casey wants this so badly, and yeah. she just 
really it's what she's been working for, right? And you're right. The case comes at an inconvenient time, right? When her health is really deteriorating. And then you see Jonah's side where he's just like, you need to stop. Just, just stop. Just take a beat because we have kids and this is not good for you, you know, but she's been successful. You know, she's been a, what was she a Stanford law grad and everything. Mm. So she's used to having what she wants when she wants it. Yeah. And she's also used to the pressure and the stress. It's just whether she can handle it on this occasion is is another question. Well, I don't want to say any more because I don't want to get towards yeah. the last kind of third and I don't like to spoil anything um, or say how anything comes out. But why don't you tell us what's in the works next? Are you working on uh, another novel? I am. I'm working on a young adult, a YA LGBTQ plus novel about a trans teen who lives in Texas. I'm actually from Dallas, Texas, and he lives in a small town. And when a bill passes that makes gender affirming care illegal in Texas, um, he and his family have to move because he can't get the medical care that Mm -hmm. he needs. And so it's a huge problem for them. However, when they move, they move to a place that is very LGBTQ plus supportive. And so he has this whole new life that he didn't Mm -hmm. have in Texas where that wasn't the case. And so with this new life and this new freedom comes a lot of challenges, but he gets a love interest, a group of friends and um, nice. And certainly yeah, it seems very, I mean, it's very topical, right? These are issues that we're, we're dealing with today and, and that are um, still pressing issues today. So that's, that's fantastic. It's a very, very current issue. Um, when are we going to expect the, the book? I think we could expect it in the fall of 2024. Cool. Or so we're looking at maybe a, the um, year. beginning of 2025. So nice but in the meantime we've uh, we've got this one which i'd like to recommend to all the listeners to check out it is uncontrollable do you want to plug your website and tell them where they can get the book that'd be great yeah so you can go to my website sarahstagswrites.com that's uh, s-a-r-a-s-t-a-g-g-s and then rights.com i'm sure it'll be in the notes and you can get the book on amazon barnes and noble uh target from my website some indie bookstores and you can also go to whatever local bookstore you have and ask them to order it for you cool i'll put a link to the website anyway uh, in the notes and sarah it's time to ask you the final question that we always ask to all of uh, the authors to call in if any existing book so think of all the existing books uh, if there's anyone that you wish you were the person to write what would that be um a book that i wish i'd written yeah cutting for stone by uh abraham oh gosh what's his last name starts with a v and i don't know how to say it but it came out about 10 years ago and it is a fantastic book and when you buy mine you should also buy that one (laughs) (laughs) okay fantastic sarah thank you so much for your time thanks for calling in and enjoy the rest of your day thanks for having me it's been wonderful thanks bye-bye well fantastic sarah staggs calling in chat about uncontrollable um and i'll put the link to her website in the show notes as always but uh, i really really enjoyed this one 
and I would say to check it out. And now we're going to find out something that you have read. The facts that will be presented are true. Yes, PJ. Hello there. Now, PJ, what have we learned about Shakespeare? Hello. Dark Place Robert and Playboy Alex. Doing all right. Glad to be here again. So I've given you those nicknames. I'm not a fan of that one. <laughs> well, that's where people will know you from. Nobody's that's why you're going to know me from that one. But let's carry on anyway. Hello, Mother. Can you hear it? Join us for Shakespeare reviews, Spanish plays and poetry, rock star interviews, film reviews, Dark Place Dreamers, and more. Patreon.com slash Booksboys. And now, Alex! Yes! So this month, I have been living La Vida Lorca. Yay! Hurrah! (laughs) So I even told one of my coworkers at the time that uh, he's a Mexican guy, and he he really liked that joke. That was really good. Um, Plus, I also heard it from another one of my coworkers. Uh, So, yeah, I've been able to talk about it a little bit there. And a little with you, but we haven't, this will be a good, sorry, a good discussion. Uh, first thing, I just really like the book that I got for it. It was $4. Ooh, nice uh, cover as well. Three plays. There's a nice cover. And it also goes inside of like another case that um, protects Ooh. it. Really, really nice. So this is Lorca's three tragedies, the rural tragedies. So you have uh, Boldus de Sangre. Uh, Yerma and La Casa de Bernarda Alba. Mm-hmm. Um, of those, I think that's probably my ranking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that would also be my ranking. I think. Yeah. So you uh, go ahead and shout it out as well. Like you've already talked about. Lorca. Yeah, we we have well over a year ago. I reviewed um, at least two of the three uh, with uh, with Mireya, our previous um, Playboy's extra co-host. And um, those episodes, I think, because we're on a one-year delay, I think they just came out for free on the Books Boys feed in the last month or two. So those are there. And if anyone hasn't checked them out and wants more in-depth of my thoughts when I actually had it fresh in my head, then those are those are on the feed uh, with me and Maria. And she was great because obviously being Spanish, she was able to add in some little context and things that, that I would be missing, you know? Ooh, nice. Yeah, that sounds really good. I... I read it in English. I'm guessing you also read it in Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't get a lot of that. I'm guessing the poetry is very different, but the poetry in this is very, very good. Mm-hmm. And in general, each play took me maybe 45 minutes to read. They're short. They are short. Yeah, they're short. Yeah. I, they're so short to the point where I was wondering if you were to go to watch one, would it need to be a double bill? Oh. I think you could do it and probably if it takes 45 minutes to read, that's probably an hour and a half play. Maybe hour so you 45. Could, yeah, maybe put an intermission in the middle. You could stretch it out, make it a... If you want to do an intermission, yeah. Make it a long enough show. But, I mean, look, I, I love Lorca. I think that he's he's fantastic. Um, and this is pretty big stuff. Like, I've even asked people, have you read any Spanish plays? And they'll say no. And I'm like, not even Bodas de Sangre? And they're like, oh, of course I've read that. Like, that, that that's <laughs> almost like just a given, you know. <laughs> you kind of have to. And yeah, it's uh, it's my favorite of all of them. That was the second one I read. Um, uh, well, I'll use the English for this one, Blood Wedding. And you kind of understand by the title where it's going to go. Yeah. But <laughs> it... 
it's let me go ahead and get some of my notes together it basically it starts off with you have uh, a mother and her son talking about how their father died at the hands of um this other character who's never in the play uh the felix family basically and her son is about to get married to this woman who used to basically date uh, a family member from that family. I think it mm-hmm. might be the son. And he's married now, but they basically still have feelings for each other. Uh, they get married. She runs away with him. So the groom then goes after them. The groom and Felix get into a fight and it I may not spoil it, but you can basically guess what happens. I thought it was really, really fun. Um I couldn't stop reading it. I was kind of worried because the first one I read was House of Bernalda Alba, and that's the one I liked the least. It's still actually pretty decent. But blood. Wedding. I do. I do like Bernardo Alba. Um, yeah. To be honest, I read four. I dislike but it. I can't remember offhand what the fourth one was. It's um, still decent. It's still decent. But even Yerma, I'm like, this is really good. Um, yeah. Now it's not considered as as good for some reason. Um, you've got yeah. Boris de Sangre and the Casa de Bernardo Alba. Those are the two kind of big ones. And then I liked Yerma, but. It didn't seem to be like as popular or whatever. It's a very important one still because it it really is about like a woman's place in the world. And it's basically about a woman who her only goal in life is to have kids. And she can't. And her husband doesn't want kids. And it's her just kind of going crazy because she goes years and years without having kids and everyone else she knows has kids and it's it's sad that people kind of feel that way. And maybe it is just romanticized by her, but some people kind of do that. Mm, yeah. Um, so what did you think about the depiction of Spain, of rural Spain? In, in particular, these are set in Andalusia, <laughs> which is where you have been, yes. the, part, the one part of Spain that you spent actually a, a good bit of time in um, last year. So honestly... These felt like very small towns, so it's not places that I was really interested in. Mm. It felt incredibly conservative, where in one of them, basically, uh, actually Bernalda Alba, uh, there's a woman who has an illegitimate child, and they just beat her to death. And it's pretty pretty brutal. Um, I... Of course, we didn't really see that. We didn't talk with many of the people. But yeah, it seems like it's very conservative types of areas. Um, So, I don't know. Spain is very, in theory, it's very religious, very Catholic um, in that regards. Although, I don't know if it it was on air or not, but I vaguely recall bringing this up to Mireya when we talked about the plays. And she said, well, that's the veneer that we show but behind the scenes we're not as religious as you think and especially not with you know millennials and gen z of course that's a that's a universal oh, yes. thing yes um uh, but yeah. it it's completely yeah 
this felt like it came from the 50s because that's kind of the time period for it. Uh, I think just after Franco was when he Franco was Franco was... I think Franco was... No, it was that. during. Yeah, because Franco... Really, we have the Movida Madrilenia, which is this cultural movement post-Franco, and that's in the 70s. Okay, yeah. And he was born in 1898, so... Um, he didn't seem to really start writing most of this until later, though? I'm not entirely sure. But there's one thing I uh, want to read about this uh, from the introduction. So, basically, basically, he says here, for his themes, he went to rural Andalusia. For his protagonists, he went to women, which I think is really great. Um, and this paragraph uh, explains it very well. His women are tragic characters, uh, they're all the Virgin Maria carried on the shoulders of men, weeping their eternal plaster tears, <laughs> wild, enduring, superb, and stronger than God to the Spanish Catholic. The tragedy lies not in the men, the barren and abstract male lovers wrapped in the arms of death, but in the women who have seen through the man-made machinery of society's law, realize it is only a substitute for life, and live on to use or defy it. Hmm. I think that's a very poetic and good way to explain what we're trying to say about these types of plays yeah um, it's very, the, it's very the well men, stated the men die pretty much in most plays um or just yeah. sent away but it's all about the women characters bernalda alba there's no male character in it whatsoever mm. there's a, a character pepe who I- exists in their world but um you never see him on stage Doesn't do anything it's yeah. interesting that Lorca really puts these female uh, protagonists. I mean, not always necessarily some of them could be antagonists, but I mean, the, the, the lead characters and most of the characters in these plays are women. Which is interesting. Um, I don't know why, yeah. to be honest. I, I never really read much into if there was some reason for that, but that's, yeah, that's always been the way of it. I want to quickly, you keep talking. I want to look up his plays to see if there's a, there's definitely a, Ah, yes. The last one that I read was Rosita. Um, so we've got Blood Wedding, Bernarda Alba, Yerma, and Rosita packaged together as a four-piece. Rosita wasn't part of the one that uh, of what I was reading about. I hadn't seen it mentioned really at all. Hmm. Um, but it seems to me that... So I remember what I wanted to say. That Lorca... He was sort of a traditionalist, but he's also very much about taking it, turning it on its head. And it seems like the more conservative parts of most countries I've been in lie with the family. And in many of those families, the women are the main part of that family. Yeah. So it seems like the best way to push forward does seem to be with the women. It makes sense, yeah. And what do you, what do you think about? I mean, these are dramatic plays as well. I mean, these got emotional oh, yes. reactions from me. They're 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 tragic at times, but they're very powerful plays. Oh yeah, um, I felt such pity for Yerma. I was just like, please, just find something else. It's not all about kids, yeah. even if like you can't have them. So it's fine and. It ruins her marriage. She 
goes and tries to go to like an occult thing that would help her get pregnant and the woman would pray for her and but uh, you know that that story is probably more common just, than we would like to think you know yeah yeah but it just really made me sad reading that one Posta Sangre was just adventurous it was energetic and mm. yeah I really liked that Bernada Alba was simple but you have her, Bernalda Alba. She is a very strong. I see her kind of like tyrannizing um, a little bit. Yeah. Well, I was going to say kind of like uh, imagine like a head nun or something at like mm. a Catholic school. She's someone who is going to lay down the law. Yeah. But you also have her mother there who is kind of <laughs> crazy. And she's like, Bernalda, I also want to get married. That's I right, a... I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah, I also did until I uh, reviewed uh, a little bit about it. It was, it also was a little bit funny, even though it is tragic. All of these, yeah, quite tragic, but littered throughout, you have some beautiful poetry of his. You said, like, check out some of his poetry, and I'm like, I, I believe you. His poetry is great in these, because you have some songs that... They'll sing to the kids and they are a bit much for kids, probably. <laughs> There's a lot of very dark imagery. Mm. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. He is considered, you know, one of the greats of yeah. sort of the modern era. It's not Spanish just Spain. Like, like I said, my coworkers are Mexican. They're like, yeah, Lorca, of course we know him. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have, uh, I still have it somewhere. My my bookmark that says "Me vuelves Lorca." I think I explained this one. <laughs> so there's a Spanish expression "Me vuelves loco," which is just "You drive me crazy." Um, so they put "Me vuelves Lorca," which I like it because it's kind of a pun that you need to explain, and then that that ruins it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, my Mexican coworkers enjoyed it. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But Fantastic. That was good. <laughs> 